This morning is June 19th, 2011. Our message this morning on Father's Day is downhill. Usually when you hear that expression in English, it's not a good thing. You know, if something's going downhill, that is uh, usually, usually indicating something negative about to happen. One of my favorite quotes in all the world came from Elvis Presley. It was not in one of his songs. In an interview, he said, when things go bad, don't go with them. Right? So this morning, uh, our, our topic, downhill, is we're going to turn it on its end. It will not be about a bad thing. It will be about a good thing. Have y'all been able to write down the message title yet? You taking notes out there? Oh, yeah. Okay, in the Older Testament, the term that we see in English, God often replaces a word Elohim. Every once in a while it replaces a word Yahweh. Sometimes uh, it replaces one of the many names of God, but most of the time it's Elohim. And it appears in the Older Testament 2,619 times. That does not include all of the times that you see the word Lord or all the times that you see other names for God translated other ways in English. The word G-O-D shows up many times in the English Bible, uh, 2,619 times. Are you surprised that less than 10 times in the Older Testament do we see the word Father referring to God? That's, that's a strange disparity there. Uh, most of the time in the Older Testament, we see God as a supreme creator. We see God as a healer. We see God as a provider. We see God as all kind of things. And His names carry those attributes. But in the Newer Testament, Jesus brought us a fuller revelation of something specifically. But before we get to that, I thought it would be good to tell you for a few moments. You've heard things like, um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? And growing up, uh, people said certain things. And people uh, might have referred to that as breaking a commandment. Well, God's name is not God. Uh, I just want to tell you that. Uh, that is an English word. And it comes from the word good. Isn't it crazy how close those two words are? God and good. It's almost like there's a link between them even in our language, huh? Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in Hebrew, Abba, right? That's Papa. That's Daddy. It's Father. And Abba, exact same word, just with one H on the end, a little bigger emphasis on the end, mean almost the same thing. One means goodness or kindness, and the other means father. Yeah, there's a link in almost all languages. Uh, I, I heard a man in Europe say, Gott es gut. <laughs> you know, and I said, yeah. what? Yeah. And, and this was, God is good. Right. There's a relationship there. But when we say God in English, this is not his name. He gave his name to Moses. He said what his name was. The covenant name of God was Yahweh. Having said that, have you noticed how easily the word God flows off of lost people's lips? God bless me. God bless America. How many times have you heard that from an inebriated man with a beer can in his hand? Hair cut off standing by somebody's water, right? How about this one? Oh, God, if you can get me out of here. How easily does that flow off of the embattled uh, in, in in lips? How about this one? God. Why'd you let this happen to me? Mm. The, the, the favorite in some household is, Oh, God, I stepped in something. Right? Now, in my house, that would have brought a strict uh, finger shaking, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm not suggesting it's a good thing to say. 
But the reality is when people say God, this is not necessarily the deity of the Hebrews. Uh, when somebody says in God we trust, the, the question is, uh, of course, everybody trusts in the God. Which, which God are you speaking of? It is very easy for people to refer to God. Every once in a while they'll even throw in nice little titles. Of course, he has a name. His name is Yahweh. And when he sent his son, the fullness of his revelation, it was Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation. Now, if you want to say in English, Jesus, that's fine. That's how I met him. I met Jorge as Jorge. Later, he introduced himself as George. I still call him Jorge. I can't help it. Right? Uh, I made acquaintance with him as Jesus. But the point is, he has a name to me. He's personal to me. And when I'm in trouble, I assure you what comes out of my mouth is not, oh, my God. In fact, can you think of the only time in Jesus' life he ever prayed saying, my God? Yeah, he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of a lost man is God. The cry of a man intimately in relationship with the deity of the Jews, with the king of the universe, Malak Olam, is my father, my Lord, my owner, my controller, my source of life. In fact, what somebody calls another might give you a hint as to what the relationship's like with them. Turn with me to the book of James. Let us look at this. Thinking of the God of Israel as just God, or thinking of Him as Father, is two distinctly, they are two distinctly different things. Tell me when you're in the book of James. James is hiding from me. Hey, while I'm still trying to find the book, did you know that the word James never appears in the Bible? Yeah, it's, it's Hebrew. Uh, Jacobus, uh, Greek, is very similar. Uh, actually, in Hebrew, it's Yaakov. And in Greek, it's Jacobus. But there was a king in England who was named James. So everywhere he saw Yaakov or Jacobus, uh, he put the word James. Jesus didn't have a brother named James. He had a brother named Yaakov, uh, Jacob. Isn't that interesting? You, you can look in the 130 plus languages that you can find on Wikipedia. And there, there, there's only one that takes the name Jacobus or Yaakov and makes it James. That's, that's English. In every other language, they, they keep it as uh, what it was. Are you in the book of James? Yeah. You still with me? Oh, yeah. It's not a 4th of July message. We, we can get over it. Right? It's Father's Day message. And my father happens to have formed the nation of Israel. My eldest brother, who is also my defense attorney and my counselor, happens to be a Jewish carpenter, and his daddy's the judge. So I assure you this is going to work out okay. It's kind of a family thing, and I've been adopted into it. Amen. Can you relate to that? Amen. 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 So uh, let's let's start in the 16th verse of James uh, chapter 1. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He has created. I would submit to you this morning that the King of the universe does not change. He is the same as He was in Genesis 1-1, as, he's, as He is in Matthew 1, as He is in Genesis 21, I'm sorry, Revelation 21-1. 
makes no difference. The king of the universe character does not change, but we have a growing perception of who he is. A growing body of knowledge based on our experience, based on the writings of people who have experienced him. And like all relationships, the relationship is progressing towards intimacy. And at first to you, he simply may be God. But as time goes on, he becomes more than that to you. In the same way that I was introduced to a man as Gary. And that's all he was to me. Some guy my mom was hanging out with named Gary. And then in time, he became my stepfather. And I said it with a certain amount of, you know, disdain. Like, as in not real. Right? Is there nobody out there who can relate to that? Yeah. And then in time, I dropped the stepfather and started words like stepdad. Right? Indicating a little more intimacy. And then, at some point, it all just kind of fell away and he was dad. What I called him during those time periods showed a little bit of what was going on in my heart. He demonstrated something in my life. He put his hands on my shoulder and said, Son, I love you. Even though everybody knew good and well, even my last name was different, I was not his son. He treated me like I was. This taught me something. Love always has a direction, James says. It is flowing down from the Father above. The Father of the heavenly lights we sang about earlier. It is always descending. Jesus descended to come to the earth. He had to. Because if He came from the realms where God is to step into humanity, friends, that was a demotion. It was a step down. But this is the direction that love flows. Love always looks for a vessel of greater need and it gravitates towards it. Come on now. The same way that if it's hot in this room and cold in the next, heat will automatically gravitate to the next room. Until it reaches an equilibrium and everything is the same, love does the same thing. It seeks to bring people into an equal state of oneness with God, of unity with Him. That's what love is. Now, I don't know how many musicians have sang about love and meant something else. I know George Michael sang about faith and didn't mean what I mean when I say faith. But to us, love is something that must flow downhill. So where is the source of all good things? From above. When somebody is the source of something, let's just say they are the source of jazz music, right? You might call them the father of jazz music. If they are the source or the originator of something, we begin to refer to them as the father of that thing. Well... This is how it works in English, but it's also how it works in many languages. I want to show you that Jesus descended to show the love of the Father. Keep your hand here. Go to Galatians 4. You make a left in your Bible. I can't help it. We will probably turn through lots of passages of Scripture today. I don't really make apology for that. It's more that I believe that the Apostle said it better than I'm capable of saying it. So I'd like to read their words. <clears throat> Are you okay with that? Yeah. Galatians 4. Let's start in verse 4. But when the time had fully come, <laughs> I've always appreciated that. Some of your Bibles may say, in the fullness of time. You know, I, I got into a discussion with a man in this church this last week who, he, he's doing very well. He's hanging on the words that we preach on, going home and looking them up. And, and I casually said uh, last week that Saul was not able to wait seven days. The young man pointed out Saul did wait seven days. Well, isn't that a great question? 
Saul waited until the seventh day, but the seventh day was not over before he gave up. Do you know what it means to have the fullness of time? To, to when the time had fully come? It means it's not just the day of your visitation. It's not just the general proximity. We're not just in the right month, just on the right day. We've reached that second in time. Everything is lined up and this is the moment. Friends, have you ever felt something was drawing near? You knew you were getting excited about it. Maybe you're on a trip to Disney World. I don't know where you go. But on your trip, you could feel. I know on the way to the beach, we'd roll down the windows and I could feel the moisture in the air. You could tell you were getting close. Well, the world was being prepped for something. If love always moves from a, a, a greater concentration to a lesser, if it always flows downhill, if it always moves to a place that it is needed, the more oppressed a person's life was, the more enslaved it was, the more mistreated it was, the greater the expression of God's love. And when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. There had never been a more guilty people on the planet than mankind. There had never been people that had had a revelation of all that God was and rejected it more than mankind. Now, many people would excuse this passage as just referring to Jews. I would submit to you that everybody who's ever received a command from God, whether Noah or Abraham or Jacob or Adam, broke the command that God gave them. This was our state. And it was called the fullness of time that God sent His love into the situation. When did He pick you, friends? When did He reveal Himself to you? Was it at the zenith of your personal goodness? No. <laughs> was it at the climax of your human experience knowing that at this point in time you had it all mastered and were the king of your very own domain? Not is that what close. it is? No. The love of God appears to a man when you are in your most broken, most humble state. This is why a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. These are the people that God is seeking to impart something to because fathers impart something. You may say, my daddy never imparted anything to me. He left before I was born. I assure you that imparted something to you. You may never have thought about it. Many of us spend large portions of our lives trying to deal with things that we don't even know what we're dealing with. Maybe an absence is what was imparted to you. But all fathers impart something. Our Heavenly Father imparts first and foremost love, concern, genuine desire to see better for you. Hmm. How about this? His Father. Turn with me to Matthew 3. I know I told you to keep your finger in James, but I changed my mind. There. Matthew 3. In the third chapter of Matthew, look at the 13th verse. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove lighting on him. What direction was the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove? From above. From above. Downward. Our Father demonstrated His love even to Jesus in this way. When Jesus took a step towards the Father, the Father imparted something to Him. The response of faithfulness on earth is that righteousness rains down. The Psalms teach us this. The response of right actions on the earth is right answers from the heavens. The Word teaches us this. So in Jesus' ministry... The Holy Ghost descended upon him in a way that people could see. It looked like a dove when the dove was trying to land. And the direction was flowing downward. We can all agree on that. What's the next verse? Somebody read it loud. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. This is my Son whom I love. And with Him I am well pleased. Pleased. Where is the affirmation coming from? Is the affirmation coming from somebody beneath Jesus at His feet saying, we really think you're a good guy? No, the affirmation that Jesus, hear this, needed. And the affirmation that He sought and the affirmation that He got was the affirmation that came from above Him. His Father put His hand figuratively on His shoulder and said, this is my Son and I am proud of Him. Come on, guys. Is there nobody in the room that longs for those words? Oh, yeah. 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 This is one of those basic things that all human beings were made to need. Am I good enough? Daddy, do I have what it takes? Am I a man? As a human being, Jesus needed those questions answered in the same way that anybody else needs them answered. And his father answered from the heavens for him. Did he do it just once? No, in Matthew 17, in the fifth verse. You don't have to turn there. I promise I'm not lying. If you want to check, it's okay. I always enjoy that. I especially like the conversations about it later. <coughs> A cloud envelops Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. All standing there in the presence of God. And a voice speaks a second time. And says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and then adds these words. Listen to him. My goodness. There is a natural stage in a, in a child's life where not only are they adequate, not only have they uh, uh, progressed on track and matured rightly, but now is the time when they take authority and others should listen to them. Some of you are old enough to have experienced this transition with your own parents even. There was a day when they bounced you on their knee. And today they look to you to help them make decisions. This is how God made things. But it did not start with your love for them, did it? No. It started with their love for you. Because love always flows downhill. It was raining affirmation on Jesus because His deeds were worthy of affirmation. Love flows downhill and has been picking up momentum since Genesis 1-2. Turn with me to Genesis. There. 
Matt and I were watching something the other day, and there was a large person moving at a high rate of speed, and Matt nicknamed them inertia. I've always enjoyed his sense of humor, you know. The person was nameless in the movie, and so Matt assigned a, a name. You know, the longer something is moving in a direction, especially if it is growing in size, it is picking up momentum. It gets harder and harder to stop. Since the moment that God... Are you in Genesis 1-2? Yeah. In 1-2, what is He hovering over? The waters. And the earth is formless and void. You remember we've taught this tohu vavohu. It means that it's like desolation has happened. It's complete chaos, probably after a judgment. This is the state in which He found the earth. The state in which He is hovering over the earth. And what does He do to it? He begins to speak into it. He speaks things like light, things like order, things like life from His breath into it. And from the moment He began interacting with this creation, His creation, the expression of His love has been growing. And our revelation of it has been growing. And it ought to be picking up so much momentum that all human beings at some point are bowled over by it and say, my Lord and my God. They, so that every knee in heaven and on earth should bow. There's so much momentum to this that at some point, the God of His creation will hold it into account for not responding to Him. I pray that this day we respond to our Father. I'm just curious. Those of you that were raised with an earthly father, and I know not everybody in here was, but those of you that were, if he called you, did he expect you to come to him? He did, didn't he? And look, my son's nodding uh, rapidly. So Judah, go ahead and stand up. You made yourself the example, son. I'm sorry. If I said, Judah, come here, in that kind of voice, and you didn't come, what would you expect to happen? It would escalate, wouldn't it? Probably my voice would get a little more intense, a little more abrupt. Uh, Judah, come here. What would happen if we reached the third time, Judah? Yeah, we probably have moved beyond speaking and into actions. Judah's probably going to get a hand on the back of his neck and he will be drugged to the place that he should go. You know why? He's my son. He's my son. I expect his obedience. You can sit down, Judah. Is that because I love him or dis dislike him? Love him. It's because I love him. I'm only calling him to myself because I had something to give him. Right, friends? Many times our understanding of God is greatly obscured. We don't see it as love flowing downhill. And the reason that we don't is the very terms that He chooses to use about Himself have become stumbling blocks for us. If your daddy was a wicked man who hurt you, right? Maybe I should say your father, right? In English, we like to make that distinction. There is no distinction in the Greek or Hebrew. If he was a wicked man who hurt you, and let's just say his name was Ralph, and then we tell you that your deity, his name is Ralph. What does that do for you? Gives you a negative connotation, huh? Yes. Now, to me, when I say the words Abigail, right? Let my face lights up when I say it. I can't help it. It means my father's joy. I love my little Abigail. I like to swim with her. I like to walk with her. I like to feed her. And somebody called me the other day and was shocked. I was braiding her hair. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> there is no limit to what I'll do for my little girl. But the first Abigail that I ever knew broke out one of my front teeth. 
And she was a heavy set redhead with a nasty hat. I was in second grade. And I'm sure she turned out to be a wonderful human being, but my perception of Abigail was not a good one. God had to change my perception of that name so that I could give it to my little girl. Today, we might have to change your perception of what it means to have a father so that you can see him rightly when he calls himself father. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. The Newer Testament uses the term father more than 250 times. There are fewer than 10 times in the Older Testament. I'm going to tell you a secret. Most of those 10, if you look close, are prophecies about Jesus speaking to the Father. It's David writing. said, you know, today you have become my Father. Right? And it's David writing with the Spirit of Jesus. But by the time we get to the Newer Testament, there's more than 250 mentions of God as our Father. If you just turn to the first book of the New Testament, if we just look at Matthew more than 42 times in the book of Matthew alone, the word Father is being applied to God. The Newer Testament is a revelation that is deeper. Now, men had it in the Older Testament. They knew they were adopted as sons. But they were adopted as sons and still referred to God as, as distant. In the Newer Testament, there is an intimacy that is revealed where the Father loves you so much that to each and every person who the Bible calls all flesh, young or old, male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, He would put His Ruach HaKodesh, His Spirit of Holiness, inside of you. And you would have a sense of oneness with Him. And Him a sense of oneness with you. And the way to that place of unity with your Creator was only through the Son that He sent as a perfect demonstration of His love. Now this is an interesting thing when you think about it. If this shows up this many times in the Newer Testament, we might need to pay attention to it. Turn with me to John. We'll look at the first chapter. In the first chapter of John, it begins very much the same way that Bereshith, the book of Genesis, begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. This is how Hebrews can call Jesus the author of life. Authors and father or originator or beginning source of all life. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Actually, his name is Johannan, but he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all men might believe. Our Father, who has love flowing from His throne down to every human being, desires all men to receive. Everybody. There is not a human being that God ever designed for destruction. 
Destruction is a conscious choice. It is a willful denial of all that God sends you that is love. And it has to be repeated over and over and over until you have seared your heart. Just like a child that hears their father calling but has decided they don't want to come. They know he's calling, but they said no. Eventually, they hate the sound of their father's voice because every time it's an indictment that they should come and don't. I witnessed to a man while I drove from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. Actually, he was driving. His knuckles grew wide on the steering wheel. He said, stop, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Stop it. I, if I didn't know, I wouldn't be guilty. That's what he said. I laughed and said, too late. You're guilty already. His name was Alan. He was in tears by the end of the trip. It was an amazing thing. It's only an hour trip. And in an hour, his life began to flash before him. In tears. You know what he was crying over? Not brokenness. Not crying because he realized his life had could change. He was crying because he knew he didn't want to. He knew what I was saying was true. He knew there would be punishment. But he'd rather just not think about it. Have you ever been to a playground and watched children do something that they know is wrong? You don't have to go to a playground to see things like that. The true light that gives light to every man was coming to the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name. Let's talk about that for a minute. To believe in His name. Name in Hebrew has to do with your function, your character, your authority, your body of work. Whatever is associated with you is involved in your name. When I say Jimi Hendrix, your first thought should be? Guitar. Guitar, right? Because that's what he's best known for. I thought somebody would say voodoo child. Or chopping down mountains with the side of your hand. I'm the only Jimi Hendrix fan. I understand that. Bad preacher. Good congregation. I'm sorry. It's almost 4th of July. We can do his Star Spangled Banner. That she had. Call it patriotism. People are associated with certain things. And to say that you believed on his name didn't mean that you could say the words Jesus didn't mean that. It meant that you associated with his movement, what he was doing, his character, his body of work to the point that you wanted to be like him. You hear me? Yeah. Imitate him to the point you want to be like him. There's a word for that in Hebrew. It's Talmud. In Greek, it's disciples. It means to be a disciple. A disciple is not someone who simply hears and acknowledges that it's true. A disciple is someone who is learning for the purpose of being like their teacher, imitating him. In Hebrew, to say son or daughter, by the way, did not always mean that you were genetically related. If somebody was a son of someone else, it may just be that they imitated their life so closely that they looked like them. You want to hear a negative use of the word? Jesus said, your disciples travel over all of the earth to go and make twice the sons of hell you already are. He called them sons of hell because that's who they imitated the most. Wow, what harsh words, huh? In the Bible, you're a son of 
whoever you act the most like. Mm. This is where we get the word bat. It means daughter. Or bar. It means son. Bar mitzvah is a point in a man's life where he's become a son of the commandments. The commandments have so instructed his life that he is imitating them. And so he is a son to the word of God. How interesting is that? What if we raised our children with that goal in mind instead of just doctor or lawyer? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This would not be children based on a heritage. It would not be children based on a bloodline. It would be children based on those who identified with his name to the point that they would be like him. Hear me, we've done ourselves a grave disservice to say to believe on him. We've not understood what that meant. To believe on him meant to imitate him. Not to believe he existed. The demons believed that he existed. And they knew his name. There's a young man in this church. He's out for Father's Day visiting his father. Very often wears a shirt that says, Five out of five demons believe Jesus is Lord. And it's true. It's a shocking shirt, isn't it? But it's true. What makes us different than a demon who believes Jesus is Lord? The demon makes no effort to imitate him. But you are supposed to be organizing your entire life based on his teachings. Doing everything that you can to walk as he walked. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. It is like you have a moment in your life where you realize you need love worse than anyone else. Period. <laughs> of all the sinners, you have become the chief. <coughs> of all the people on that certain creek without powers, you're the furthest from all. And now it's time for rescue. And you've begun to cry out. That gives us mercy. It gives us the right to do something. To then turn from what we were doing and choose God. Not just as a God, but as our Father. And us, like His children, learning from Him, being fed by Him, wearing His name, being provided for by Him, and ultimately imitating him to other people. Mm. Living epistles, the word says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where did Jesus come from? From the Father, love being poured down. Now listen to this next one. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I don't have time to teach this because there are other things I want to teach you. This is not juxtaposed to each other. This is not compare and contrast. The Moses gave us the law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. It is as good as the law is that Moses gave us. Jesus gave us grace and truth to an even greater degree. No Jew reading this would have went, Moses gave us the law. Never would have happened. That's an invention of Western theologians. The truth is the law is life if you view it properly. Jesus is even more life because 
He's the embodiment, the personified law. By the way, when the Bible says the word became flesh, what an interesting thing. What was the written word at the time? The law. The law. So the law apparently became flesh. Uh, you sing songs like, uh, your word is more precious than silver, right? Yeah. Except the Bible, speaking of the word, calls that law. Also says it brings freedom to you. Life to your bones. Well, we might need to read it again, huh? Because that's not what we've been told that it does. Hmm. If you want to be like your father, you need to know how he operates. You need to know what he thinks about it. You need to be able to read Pastor Rule and see what his intent is. You know, as a little kid, me and Joey Gibson were told by his mother, do not go in the pool while I'm going. You hear me? Y'all do not go swimming. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. She'd been gone not five minutes and we had our feet in the pool. Right? But we weren't swimming. Did we keep the intent of her command? No, we might have been able to say we kept the letter. Of it. We didn't go swimming. But she didn't want us near the pool because she was concerned for our safety. And the first thing we did was put our safety in jeopardy in total disregard for the mitzvah, the command. Now, if what I did is say, because I didn't go swimming, my foot was only in it, I had become righteous. That would be a legalistic perversion of the law, and that is precisely what Paul is addressing. Having said that, we have another scripture. Y'all want to hear it? Yes. Yeah. I know that's a rabbit. Charlie told me the Bible is full of rabbits. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that there are people in here, some of you that when I say law, it means nothing to you. Others that when I say law, it means restriction. Others, when I say law, you've only heard it within the context of a certain denomination. I want to tell you that the aim of everything that God has ever said is life. That's the aim of it. The aim of the Torah is life. To us, to call the law, I fought the law and the law won. <laughs> Shot the sheriff and didn't see his deputy. See, we'll see what you're doing, Midjetchen. <laughs> to us, law is a restriction. To the Jew, law was the right way to live. Okay? You're with me still? Yeah. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. At first, it sounds as if we're talk of, talking about visually perceiving. Nobody's ever seen Lisa. Nobody's ever seen her. Nobody's perceived her. But Tyrell's made her known. What on earth could that possibly mean? Maybe he talked about her. Maybe he described her. Maybe nobody had ever laid eyes on her. But through Tyrell's description of Lisa, suddenly you knew her. What happened is, the Father who is spirit and can't be seen. John 3.13 says that. The Father who is spirit and can't be seen becomes knowable, interactable. That's not a word, but if you're a preacher, you're allowed to do that. At least once a sermon. In the man Jesus. He's in someone that you can hug, talk to, shake hands with, wash the feet of. Okay. See, how are you going to crucify a spirit? How are you going to flog him? And in Jesus, we have someone that we can interact with for good or bad. Any way that we choose. In Jesus, the Father becomes knowable. Same way your neighbor becomes knowable. 
this was an act of love. It was so that he could come to his own and got it. And we would go, wow, you're not so distant from us. You're not so far. You've shared in our weakness to show us what you're like. You put your arm upon me and the Father and you're making peace. This was the point, friends. The point was to say, when I'm hungry, you know what it's like to be hungry. It's not just to look and say, oh, he always got it right and we never did. The same people that misunderstand the law that God gave misunderstand Jesus that God gave. It was to say, come here, Keith. You want to be good to your children. This is how you do it. Look, when I step, you step. When I hug, you hug. When I speak, you speak. God became a human being so he could do exactly this. So he could touch people. When he touched them, what happened to their lives? Changed. They changed. They got healed. When he looked at them, by the way, if a spirit looks at you, how would you know it? If the spirit looked at you and loved you, how would you know it? But when the rich young ruler walks away sad, one of the gospels records Jesus looked at him and loved him. So you can see that in the expressions of a man. You cannot see that in a spirit. So Jesus' ministry, if you will, is to take the concept of God, all of His attributes, all of His covenant names, all of His mighty deeds, all that He is, and package it in one human being in a perfect way so that you could interact with Him. He made Him Lord over all creation so that you could interact with Him. He made our Father knowable. When He taught us to pray, did He teach us to pray, My God, My God? What did He say? If it were me, I would have said, My Father. But this was never His mission. His mission was not to say, God is my Father. His mission was to say, I am one of you, and He can be our Father. My, my, my. Now, if you have a bad dad, you may think, why would I ever want that? I want to tell you quickly. Bill had a story that he wanted to share, and I said, no, don't share it. You know? It's hard to hear that sometimes, isn't it? But Bill loves me, and he said he'd trust me. I think that story was for this point in the message. It's a greeting card company that wanted to do something kind for prisoners. It's a true story. So on Mother's Day, they gave all of the prisoners as many cards as they wanted so they could get things right with Mama. Can you relate to that? In a bad place, who's going to love you? Mama. You can be a serial killer and Mama's going to love you. They had such a raving success with their Mother's Day card program. It hit all of the marks. Wild beyond their greatest expectations. They decided to do it a few months later for Father's Day. Why did it fail? Because the men who were in prison had no relationship with their fathers. And that's one of the reasons they were in prison. Come on, is that sinking in on you? Yeah, buddy. It's Father's Day. To be a father is a powerful thing. Jesus not only descended because love flows downhill, but he taught us to do something else. He did not just descend. Those of you that grew up in churches where the Apostles' Creed 
is you know that He also ascended. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Tell me when you're there. I want to tell you that, and I look, all of us struggle with different things. If this is your struggle, I am not calling you out. I'm telling you that after so many years of ministry, when I sit in front of someone that is struggling with homosexuality, whether they've given into it or it's just always been a thought in their life, one of the most shocking things that they experience with me is in the first few minutes, I usually ask them about their relationship with their father. And I don't have to have a crystal ball to know that it wasn't good. In all these years of ministry, I have never met someone who was a repeat offender in jail, who was struggling with some of the most difficult vices in the world. Things that the church often shuns and turns away. They had a good relationship with their father. This is because the devil has taken a wink out of the chain. Love is supposed to flow downhill and the first link in the chain in your house was supposed to be dead. And if the devil could cut the head off the snake, so to speak, he knew it would affect him. This is why our homes are coming apart. I know. We say it takes two to tango. I assure you it only takes one to not want to. And if daddy will not be the leader in the home, it will affect generations to come in. It's Father's Day. Jesus did not just descend. He also ascended. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. We'll be in verse 9. What does he ascended mean except also that he descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Before we go on to that next verse, if you're raised in an ecclesiastical setting, if you've ever been in the ecumenical circles, then what you hear me saying are titles. What you hear me saying are things like cardinal, and bishop, and pontiff, and whatever else you might be able to come up with. When Jesus descended, He was God's gift to mankind to show love. When He ascended, He was showing us how to reciprocate the love that God had shown us. He was showing us what the proper response to God's love was. These are not titles, friends. They're actions. You pastor people when you've received God's love. You evangelize people when you receive God's love. You will prophesy, speak the very words of God to people when you have received God's love. You will teach them. You will do all of the things that the fivefold ministry does. And why? The next verse says, to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, it flowed from the Father to the Son, through the Holy Spirit to you. Now, maybe even a leader in a church. And your job is for it to flow right on through you to someone else, and to someone else, and to someone else. Think about our commandments. Ephesians says it, Deuteronomy says it, and Exodus says it. Honor your father. And what comes next? 
that it may so that it may go well with you and your days on the earth be long. Paul points out it's the first commandment with a promise. This is the word of God teaching us how to respond to the authority above us. You know what it does not say in that passage? Not in all three places where it's listed? Fathers, love your children. You know why? It's assumed that a father would naturally love his children. Because God loved the father enough to give him a child. And that the child would have to be taught to love the parent. My, 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 how things, how the eggs have gotten scrambled. Are you beginning to see why the devil's work to remove the image of a father? To remove and disparage the image of a father? The father was the one in your life that was supposed to have received love from God. Pass that on to you and then say, Son, this is what it looks like. This is how we show our love for God. We go and love other people. Because again, how are you going to look at a spirit with love? How are you going to hug him? Just so happens that the spirit that is Yahweh God inhabits his people like a temple. So that you can say whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. So that you can say, don't you know, if a man destroys God's temple, he'll be destroyed by God. That temple is you. Finally, we've applied both of those scriptures in the wrong way. But we don't have time to teach that today. Our daddy was supposed to teach us how to love our fellow man. Turn with me to 1 John. Are you all tired of turning? No. No, because you love the Word of God. There. In 1 John, the fourth chapter, let us make this point with the scripture. Dear friends, this is the seventh verse. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Flows downhill. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Since you're not going to go wrap your arms around the Father and since Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father to show love for the Father, or love for Jesus, the Lord, we love each other. It could prompt the question, who is my neighbor? <laughs> By the way, what direction were they headed out of Jerusalem? Down. down. Because love always flows down. The Samaritan was headed down to where that man was to show him love. Have you ever heard, well, I'm not going to stoop to their level. If what you mean is I'm not going to reciprocate negativity, I'm with you. 
But love always stoops to the level that they're on and it rescues them from it. Well, you know what? I hate you and I think you're a worthless human being. Well, we cannot stoop to their level. Or we could say, that's a shame because I love you. You know, you got all the potential of God in you. You could be amazing for the Lord. But we don't, do we? We want to defend. We want to accuse. We want to fight. Love always stoops down to their level. And it meets them right where they are. And it shows them how to reciprocate the love they're receiving from God. Chief among all of these is forgiveness. Amen. How can you have received forgiveness and not forgive? I want to tell you that love pays dividends for a lifetime. This is a true story. His name was Fleming. He was a poor Scottish farmer. One day while he was trying to make a living for his family, he heard a cry for help coming from a nearby bog. He dropped his tools and ran to the bog. There, mired to his waist in the black mud, was a terrified boy. Screaming and struggling to free himself, the boy was unable. Farmer Fleming saved the lad from what could have been a slow, agonizing death. The next day, a fancy carriage pulled up to the Scotsman's sparse surroundings. An elegantly dressed nobleman stepped out and introduced himself as a father of the boy that Farmer Fleming had saved. He said, I'd like to repay you, Farmer Fleming. Farmer Fleming. The nobleman said, no, I will not receive payment. At that moment, the farmer's own son came to the door of the family hovel. The nobleman said, is that your son? Yes, the farmer replied proudly, putting his arm around his son. The nobleman said, I'll make you a deal. Let me take him and give him a good education. If the lad is anything like his father, he'll grow up to be a man that you can be proud of. The farmer consented. In time, Farmer Fleming's son graduated from St. Mary's Medical School in London. And he went on to become known throughout the world as the noted Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Years afterwards, the nobleman's son was stricken with pneumonia. You want to guess what saved him? The name of the nobleman, Lord Randolph Churchill. His son's name? Sir Winston Churchill. You should know him as saving you from the Nazis just a few generations ago. Stooping down to where someone is to help them is exactly what our Father has demonstrated to us. And He demonstrated it for the purpose of us learning to reciprocate it. This is not about humane works. It's not about humanitarian efforts. It is about the gospel of the living God and it is impossible to separate the gospel from our actions. You can't go to the world and feed them all without the gospel. What good would it do? And you cannot go to the whole world and just give them the quote-unquote gospel, which is intellectual assent, without feeding them. What would it do? We go and demonstrate the love that our King has given us. And it is not segmented. It is not in the realm of theology or doctrine. It is not in the realm of solely good humanitarian efforts. You were ministered to in every way, shape, and form by your Father in heaven. And we go and reciprocate that. We meet every need, no matter what it is. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. 
I can't tell you what the world would look like today if the farmer hadn't saved the boy. Can you imagine no penicillin? Can you imagine no Winston Churchill? You know, history has been turned several times on a single kind act. There's a day in history that you may not be all that familiar with. You've read the story of Sennacherib and King Hezekiah. Isaiah recorded it. It's recorded a couple of places in the Bible. The northern kingdom of Assyria attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped them out. Some 20, 30 years later, they're coming for the two remaining tribes. Have you heard the expression, the lost ten tribes of Israel? Yes. They're lost because Assyria swallowed them. I mean, picked them up and scattered them all over the world. And now they're coming for the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Just two of ten tribes, God's testimony people upon the planet. The monuments in Assyria and Nineveh speak of Sennacherib's victories, said that he overthrew 46 cities in Judah. 46. Friends, that's, that's the bulk of all that there were. The last of which to fall was a city called Lachish, a stone's throw from Jerusalem. As they huddled together the masses and beheaded them, that spirit's been around a long time. They identified the nobles and marked their heads. And they sent an emissary with 100 severed human heads to Jerusalem. The words are recorded in Isaiah. Sennacherib's commander called out to the people and said, Your God can't save you. None of the gods of any of the other people have saved them. Look what we just did. He had with him heads. He made unspeakable blasphemies against God. It's recorded in biblical history. It's recorded in Assyrian history. It's recorded in the other histories of the world. Nobody seems to know why, but the Bible says it. Insurmountable odds in a young man named Hezekiah who had a really bad daddy named Ahaz stood up to the tyranny. He chose to see God as his father. And he got a word from Isaiah that says, What has taken root below will soon bear fruit above. In other words, a little voice that you have inside you that says what is right. If you can just hang on, it's going to bear fruit above. So although everybody was quaking in fear, Hezekiah said, I will not bow to you. How to us this seems like just a place in history. You got it when I talked to you about Winston Churchill and Alexander Fleming, didn't you? I'd like to tell you that if Sennacherib overthrows the city, of Jerusalem, 680 some odd BC. There would be no Israel. If there was no Israel and no Jewish people, to what people would Jesus have been born? If there was no Jesus, where would be the followers of Christ through the last two millennia? If there was no Judeo-Christian system, what would your life look like today? Some people estimate there's been a hundred billion people live on this planet. Some say 110 billion. Careful analysis of history says less than 5% of those ever 
and enjoyed the freedoms that an American enjoys today. We'll hear what happened yes. in Jerusalem. They didn't march out and face Senator. They didn't have to. And one night, God sent one angel because he loved his children and his eyes always on them. And the angel struck down 185,000 men and inexplicably to the rest of the world. Sent Sharon went home with his tail between his legs. This would be much like Monaco, smallest country in the world, defeating the United States today. And the historians say maybe there was a plague. You ever heard of a plague killed 185,000 people in a single night? No. They don't know what to say. History is turned on you listening to what God has put inside of you and letting it bear fruit above you. That's where it begins and ends. He's already demonstrated his love to you. Question is, what are you going to do with it? Miriam Webster says a father is one who originates or institutes or relates to another human being as like a father to a child. The Bible uses the word father to mean progenitor, head, chief, ruler, prophet, leader, author, source, beginner of anything. I would like to tell you that all fathers do certain things. All fathers impart something to the world, even the ones. All fathers raise a harvest of something. And all fathers care enough about that harvest the discipline they need to. These are the marks of a good earthly father. They're the marks of our heavenly father. And they're the things that we should celebrate on Father's Day. But you do not have to be a male or a father to participate in it. We all have a way or access to become children of God. 